This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, I'm coming at you on a different day than normal. Uh, You know, we obviously, we don't do this very often. I think this might be just the second time. And unfortunately, it's for very similar circumstances. But obviously, I wanted to talk to you guys about the Islamic terrorist attack that took place in Sri Lanka on Easter over the weekend. I know most of you have heard about this. Uh, You've gotten the news from wherever you get your news, whether you get it on Twitter or cable news or wherever you get that. But for those of you that are maybe not up to the details, these are the latest details of the recording of this podcast. And I'm recording this podcast on Monday, the 22nd. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read an article uh, by Emily Zanotti over at the Daily Wire. It's called Sri Lankan Death Toll Rises to Nearly 300 as Authorities Admit They Received Threats. So I'm just going to go ahead and read through this so you guys have kind of the latest because this article I found uh, it has a conglomeration of a lot of different outlets uh, reporting on this entire thing. So I'm going to go ahead and read that article here, okay? Sri Lankan officials now say nearly 300 people have died from a series of suicide bomber attacks that took place on Sunday, ripping through churches and hotels as the country's Catholic and Christian communities began their celebration of the Easter holiday. The Sri Lankan government also admitted Monday that it had, quote, prior information, unquote, about the attacks, according to Reuters, but did little to act on what authorities now believe were specific threats issued by a, quote, little known Islamic group, unquote, called National Tahid Jamath. I I believe I'm saying that right, but that's just what I'm going with. National Tahid Jamath operating within the country. Quote, some intelligence officers were aware of the this incident. Therefore, there was a delay in action. Serious action needs to be taken as to why. Why this warning was ignored, unquote, a Sri Lankan telecommunications minister told media Sunday night. Another minister noted that administrators in his division had also received threats, indicating that two jihadist suicide bombers were planning attacks, but that he'd heard the attacks would be assassinations, not mass terror attacks. Reuters reports that certain Sri Lankan officials admitted to hearing about threats against, quote, prominent churches, unquote, more than a week ago from, quote, a foreign intelligence agency, unquote, but ministers and police weren't given any information. But Sunday night, at least two dozen people were arrested in connection with the bombings, which have which may have gone on for days, based on what authorities found in several raids on houses near the Sri Lankan capital of Colombo. The Wall Street Journal reports that 85 additional detonators were found abandoned in a bus station, signaling that the jihadists had planned to carry out a series of terror attacks and that the Easter Sunday bombings were just the beginning. Investigators are also looking into whether National Tahid Jamath, which is virtually unknown to on the international terrorism scene until yesterday, has ties to much larger terror organizations operating abroad, or whether Sunday's terror attacks are connected to members of ISIS, many of whom are returning to their home states, including Sri Lanka, now that the caliphate has all but collapsed in the Middle East. National Tahid Jamath is, the Jerusalem Post reports, new to the scene and the brainchild of an Islamic extremist preacher named Malvi Zaran Hashim. And this isn't the first time authorities have run into Malvi Zaran Hashim's handiwork. His organization has been prosecuted in the past for denigrating Buddhists, and he had reportedly planned to bomb Sri Lankan's Indian High Commission earlier this month, but was thwarted. Authorities have yet to officially admit a connection between the attacks and the preacher, but they have been clear that the bombings are the work of an organized Islamic jihadist, all of whom are Sri Lankan citizens. No one has claimed responsibility in the attack, a rarity for Islamic terrorism. The attacks were certainly organized and involved at least eight explosions at seven key targets, three churches and four hotels. Six of the attacks, the Wall Street Journal reports, were carried out by suicide bombers. Other attacks were most certainly planned and at least one attack, a car bomb attack outside the St. Anthony Shrine near Colombo, failed. The bomb apparently did not go off as planned. 
Another bomb near Sri, Lanka, Sri Lanka's airport was found and dismantled before an attack could be carried out. The official death toll from Sunday's attacks rose sharply overnight, from near 200 to near 300, with more deaths expected. And the injured count has also risen to nearly 500. At least 32 of the dead are foreigners. Two of those are believed to be American. So... Obviously, this is a horrific, horrific tragedy, and I know that word tragedy is thrown around quite often, but I think this certainly makes a cut of something that is tragic. Um, anytime that somebody is killed in their place of worship, regardless of the place of worship, so these feelings could be held for, for what happened to the Jews, I believe, in Pennsylvania here in the United States, what happened to the Muslims in New Zealand, and certainly what happened to the Christians in Sri Lanka. Uh, it's a horrible thing uh, to be worshiping, um, <clears throat> to be serving your God, to be praying, to be doing any of those things, and to suffer an attack like this. It's absolutely gut-wrenching. And for me as a Christian and for you uh, that are Christians that are out there listening to this, it's got to feel a little bit different to you as well. That's that's not to say, again, we all have the Imago Day, We're all equal in God's eyes. However, this does come a little bit closer to home for us because these are our brothers and sisters. And for us as Westerners, I mean, we wake up and there's no threat of persecution. There's no threat of genocide. There's no threat of anything. The worst thing that happens to you as a Christian in the United States is someone says something off color to you in the office, right? Because they know you're a Christian and they're going to try to offend you by saying Jesus is like the spaghetti monster in the sky or something like that. Or, you know, it's just one of those deals. But this is this is terrifying, and there's no telling um, how high the death toll is going to go. There are obviously dozens, uh, do- dozens and dozens of people that are still in critical condition. These people might end up losing their lives, uh, which will be more people claimed in this terrorist attack. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's very sad, and, and I wanted to give this about 24 hours uh, before I would give my thoughts on it. 24 hours to really mainly let a lot of the information come in, because in, in that time there's still a lot of panic. It's hard to kind of figure out what numbers look like whenever they're still going through triage and still trying to figure out where everybody is. Uh, I've seen some video and um, some pictures of the attack, and they're absolutely gruesome. Don't I mean, I'm not going to put any of them in the show notes here. So obviously, you guys have Google. If you just desperately want to see the brutality and what happened after these bombs went off, you can certainly go find that. But a terrible, terrible thing that was um, basically done in the name of Muhammad, uh, done in the name of, of Allah. And um, I think we need to be clear about about that. But before we get too far into the Islamic part of what we're all doing here, it was very interesting to me, and certainly to a lot of other people, because I'm not the first person to point this out, how certain people decided to react. And it just so happens that a lot of these reactions were very similar to one another. And then it also just so happens that most of these people happen to be on the political left. Again, when the right does something that's gross and stupid, I want to be one of the first people to raise my hand and say, hey, I more so align with these people, but what a stupid thing for them to say and do, right? Uh, Again, for any of you that have talked to me for any length, and I'm certain that I've said some things similar here on this podcast, I like to call balls and strikes with with guys like Trump or with anybody that's on my side of the aisle, whether I support them or not, like I want to be able to call balls and strikes. But the reactions to this were unbelievably interesting from three key people. Former President Barack Obama, uh, former presidential candidate, multiple time presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, and a Texas congressman named Joaquin Castro. Okay, so on Twitter, these were all things that were posted on Twitter within hours of the attack. And I just wanted to read to you uh, in succession what Obama, Clinton, and Castro said. So we'll start with Barack Obama. Quote, the attacks on tourists and Easter worshipers in Sri Lanka are an attack on humanity. On a day devoted to love, redemption, and renewal, we pray for the victims and stand with the people of Sri Lanka, end quote. Here's Hillary Clinton, quote, on this holy weekend for many face, we must stand united against hatred and violence. 
I'm praying for everyone affected by today's horrific attacks on Easter worshipers and travelers in Sri Lanka, unquote. And then here's Castro, quote, the brutal and senseless attacks in Sri Lanka have brought grief to a day founded on joy. My prayers are with those who lost their loved ones today. To all those celebrating Easter, we must recommit on today of all days to stamp out the scourge of hate across the world, end quote. So let's talk about what was said here in those three very, very short quotes. We saw Easter worshipers. So that was quoted here, Easter worshipers. Uh, another way of saying it was all those celebrating Easter. Then we had the word tourists and the word travelers. Okay. So now let's talk about what wasn't said. Perhaps the word Christians. Maybe that would have been an easier word to use than Easter worshipers. What also wasn't said was Islam, Islamic terrorism, Muslim. We didn't get any of those words, but we got Easter worshipers and all those celebrating Easter. It's pretty, pretty interesting. If nothing else, it was almost as if these were coordinated, these responses, as if this was part of a plan or talking points. But I also want to contrast that. Uh, We don't have, I don't have any comments from Castro on this, but I want you to kind of notice the difference with the tone and tenor of what Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton said after the white supremacist attack in New Zealand a couple of months ago. So for those of you who, uh, who don't know what that's about, go back to episode 67 of this podcast. It's called Kia Kaha. I go into detail about what happened there, but this is a white supremacist that attacked Muslims inside of uh, two separate mosques. So let's look at the different tweets that were sent out after that attack. So here's Barack Obama, quote, Michelle and I send our condolences to the people of New Zealand. We must grieve with you and the Muslim community. All of us must stand against hatred in all its forms, unquote. Here's Hillary Clinton, quote, my heart breaks for New Zealand and the global Muslim community. We must continue to fight the perpetuation and normalization of Islamophobia and racism in all its forms. White supremacist terrorists must be condemned by leaders everywhere. Their murderous hatred must be stopped, unquote. So now let's look at this. What was said? We saw the word Muslim used. We saw Islamophobia used racism, white supremacist terrorists, and murderous hatred, murderous hatred. Now let's talk about what wasn't said. And what wasn't said was nothing. Everything that was important was said. Everything. Those two quotes there, I, I couldn't agree with them more. If I could have liked them multiple times, I would have. Because our hearts should break for New Zealand and the global Muslim community after something like that. Absolutely. We must grieve with the Muslim community. And we must stand against white supremacist terrorists. We must do those things. But the thing that's interesting here is why weren't they as specific on the previous quotes? Why did they say Easter worshipers instead of Christians? Is that not the least bit interesting? That we didn't get this, you know, call to action that we must stand against hatred, especially those that hate Christians. Did we get something like that? You know, if if Jews had been attacked, you know, this was over Passover, right? It it was a similar weekend for those types of people. What would the, what, what would the talking points have been then? Passover worshipers? Passover observers? Why the difference in the specificity of things? And this begs the question, is that our semantics that important? 
Because you might be thinking to yourself, oh, this is just kind of semantics. But as I was thinking through this, I saw a tweet by Ali Beth Stuckey, and I think she nailed it here. And here's her tweet, quote, I'm seeing a lot of people say that semantics aren't that big of a deal. Strongly disagree. When every single top Democrat used the same phrase and downright refuses to use the word Christian, despite Christians being the number one target of religious harassment in the world, it's intentional. Now, if some of this language sounds familiar, you might be thinking back to episode 47 of this podcast. It was called Persecution and Genocide. So that one, uh, I went into detail about this uh, report called The Persecution and Forgotten, They're Persecuted and Forgotten, rather. And it's a report on Christians oppressed for their faith in 2015 through 2017. And it shows that Christians were the most persecuted group of any other people group in terms of religious circles than any other group in the, in the world. Right. This report was put together by aid to the church in need. And this was something that you just I'm not going to you know rehash the main points of that podcast, but it's horrific what Christians are going through on a regular basis in countries all over the world. When we look at the the numbers, even to today, like, you know, I'd be like, oh, well, that was 2015. Things are different now because of, you know, Trump or global warming or whatever the thing that you want to say that is even to this day on a monthly basis, Christians are killed more often just for the fact that they are Christians than any other people group on the planet. Well, except for unborn babies, but you know, we, we won't necessarily dive into abortion on this podcast, but you know, the drill, but the thing that was interesting, and I thought this was really well, how, how this person pointed it out, but Matt Walsh from the daily wire in his podcast today, he was talking about, can you imagine what would have happened if we would have described or anybody would have described the victims of the pulse nightclub shooting that was in Orlando several years back as, you know, bar hoppers murdered or, you know, club hoppers murdered. No, these people were specifically targeted because it was a gay nightclub and the person specifically targeted them because they were gay. That was an integral part to the story. So, so the Muslims in Sri Lanka, these jihadists, these were people that were just trying to find random places to blow up. These were coordinated attacks that were meant to kill as many Christians, believers in Christ as possible. So yes, semantics are really, really important here. Right. I mean, if we're if we're being equal here, I thought it was ridiculous that on, you know, on Easter that we we saw so many people that were just hopping on this issue and they immediately tried to politicize it. The thing about it is, is we should be able to call it Muslim fundamentalist terrorists like we should be able to say that without people thinking, oh, my gosh, is this guy an Islamophobe? Because that's one thing that shuts down conversations about what should happen in the Muslim communities and in these different areas is when you just straight up call someone an Islamophobe just because they're, you know, basically saying that they're concerned. It's a problem, I think. And this begs the next question, which aren't these just radicals, though? We, we always hear that. It's always radical Muslims, right? Radical jihadists. But here's the thing, guys. The scary answer is no. These aren't just radicals. These are fundamentalists. Like, and when I'm saying, you know, they, like who they are, I'm talking about ISIS, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, Boko Haram, this new group, National Tahi, Jamath, and all the other different ones that you can think of. These are fundamentalists. And guys, just to be honest with you, like, uh, I'm not fully prepared to go into a deep dive into Islam. Uh, that's something I'm actually planning on doing here with you guys here in the next few months or so. I want to kind of do a, a much deeper dive and give you guys some more details, uh, but I do want to go into a couple of different areas because I want you guys to be armed with the truth. Whenever you, wherever you get your news, whether it's CNN or Fox or MSNBC or Twitter or the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, I don't care. 
I want you, whenever you hear certain things, to I want you to look at it a little bit askant because every time someone says radical Muslims on the right or the left, I'm like, ah, are they radicals though? There's very, very few people that say fundamentalist Islam is the reason for this. And so again, without going into to too uh, straight of detail, uh, for those of you that aren't really aware, you know, in the Christian world, we just have the Bible. That is essentially the gathering of God's uh, declaratives to us as humans, right? There's not really anything outside the Bible that we hold in as much esteem as the Bible, right? But that is different in the Muslim community. They have the Quran, which obviously most of us know about. That's the word of God as dictated to Muhammad by the archangel Gabriel, right? It's written in Arabic. And one thing that you may not know is that if you're a true Muslim, you're supposed to be able to read the Quran in Arabic, because it was only supposed to be read in Arabic, right? That was the the meaning. It could only be read in Arabic that you can't really get the full oomph of what's going on in that book if you read it after it's been translated. That That's what they believe. But you also have something called the Hadith. That's H-A-D-I-T-H, the Hadith. This is essentially a, a massive collection of traditions that contain sayings and stories about the Prophet Muhammad. Right. So it's kind of one of those things that if you don't find your answer in the Quran, you can find it in the Hadith. Right. And there's a lot of people that act out a lot of the things that they do on a daily basis because of what it says inside the Hadith. But one thing that's really, really important to know about the Quran specifically, again, I'm just basically glancing over all these things is you have to understand the concept of abrogation. And I promise this is going somewhere. So you have to understand the concept of abrogation. Okay, so abrogation basically means is the writings that were done latest, right? So, so the latest writings that we have, a lot of those things have taken the place of previous writings, right? So, so imagine you're you know driving down a street and the you know the the speed limit used to be 35, but now it's 40, right? You can't be pulled over if you're going 39 miles an hour and be written a ticket because it used to be 35. I know that's kind of a silly example, but hopefully that makes sense. Like the law had been abrogated. It used to be 35, but now it's 40. We are going by that new speed limit. So as long as you don't go over 40, you're good to go, right? The reason why that's important is because for a lot of people that are trying to study the Quran, it's very, very difficult to get any type of a read on the Quran because it's not really uh, set up in the same way that, you know, a Bible would be or a historical book that kind of starts from the beginning and works its way to the latest time period. Uh, It's just kind of a little bit of a jumbled mess. But the ninth surah, so surah, S-U-R-A-H, surah, it's like chapter or book, right? It's it's the ninth book of of, uh, the Quran. That is the least abrogated text that we have. Okay. The least abrogated, which means it was the most recent revelation to Muhammad. Right. And so there's a lot of peaceful texts that people will quote from the Quran and they think they're quoting it to display that, you know, this is some sort of a peaceful religion. But what they don't understand is that a lot of those texts have been abrogated. It's like, Oh, nope, that's not really important anymore. So to kind of, you know, further that point just a little bit. I'm going to read a section from Nabil Qureshi's book, uh, May He Rest in Peace, but No God But One, Allah or Jesus. I'm actually going to be going through this book with a group of guys on my Sunday night crew. So if you're listening to this and you are in the Oklahoma City area, come to the Forge uh, in Edmond. That's the Jiu-Jitsu gym at seven o'clock. We are this week, if you're listening to this on time, we are starting this book and we are going to be reading it and going through it and discussing it and kind of arguing our way through this book together. But I want to read you this quote here because it'll kind of shed some more light on Surah 9. So here's the quote from Nabil Qureshi. Quote, I began to investigate this matter of violence. There are violent verses in the Quran, but because there are also peaceful verses, I believed at first that their context was defensive fighting. As I went deeper, I realized that was simply not the case. 
For example, Surah 9 is the last major chapter to have been composed, and is also the most violent chapter in the Quran. See verses 5, 29 through 33, and 111 as some examples. These verses are frightening, commanding Muslims to fight and kill non-Muslims, saying that Allah has made Islam to prevail over all religions and that Muslims must slay in battle. It seems that Surah 9, as the final major chapter that Muhammad left for Muslims, was intended as marching orders for the Muslim community, and they certainly treated the chapter that way. That is why, within 150 years of Muhammad's death, Muslims had conquered one-third of the known world, unquote. Okay, and so again, I, I realize I need to kind of back up for those of you who don't know who Nabil Qureshi is. So Nabil Qureshi was a Muslim, I believe he was a Salafi Muslim, you normally have uh, Sunnis and Shias. But he was of a different sect, and he kind of grew up basically trying to be an apologist for, for Islam. And uh, in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, obviously, most people know this by now, he had a Christian that basically engaged with him over a long period of time, and then he eventually became a Christian himself, Nabil did. And so he became a, a member of Ravi Zacharias's team, and so he was traveling all over the world uh, talking about Islam and talking about why he converted to Christianity. This guy lost his entire family. I mean, it's just different in the Muslim world. It's just not even comparable to what we see today. Um, whenever you, it'd be like you, like if you were to go from one church to another in your hometown, it's not really that big a deal. But can you imagine if leaving that church was almost like leaving America as well? Like not only were you no longer a part of First Baptist West, you know, in Lawton, Oklahoma, you also were no longer an American if you started to go to a different church, right? It'd just be kind of a different, different thing, right? That would just kind of be a little bit silly. So uh, it's just a very, very deep thing that this man had to go through. And uh, I think it was uh, just over a year ago now, he actually died of stomach cancer. So he had a really horrible uh, bout with stomach cancer and he lost that bout. But we do have some amazing books that he's left over and we'll talk some more about those here in a little bit. But also, uh, also from another book that he wrote, uh, the one that I just talked about, Seeking Law, Finding Jesus, that one kind of reads more like a, a memoir uh, of kind of how he found Christ. There's a lot where he goes into different details about the fact that Islam is not a peaceful religion. That's what you always hear is like, oh, Islam, is, it's, it's about peace and it's about loving your neighbor and all these different things. And, you know, Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda and all these groups, like they're not really doing it the way that it should be done. But I want to read three different sections from Seeking the Law, Finding Jesus that kind of give a little bit more light into those different things. So here's the first section here. Quote, differences aside, it is worth noting that a great deal of overlap exists between the majorities of Muslims. For example, all four major schools of Sunni thought and all three major schools of Shia thought teach that people who leave Islam must be killed for their apostasy, disagreeing only on the details of qualifying circumstances and implementation. Only outlying groups such as liberal Muslims and Ahmadis disagree with the time-honored practice, unquote. And so for those of you who aren't really aware, if you were to group up Sunnis and Shias, that makes up pretty much 100% of the Muslims in the world. I mean, Sunnis are, are by far the biggest group, and then you have Shias, but, you know, all the other small sects, all of them combined don't even compare. They don't even come close. It is overwhelmingly Sunni and Shia. And so those two groups... Um, that's what they think is if somebody leaves the Muslim religion, if they leave, then they are an apostate and the circumstance for them, even though, like it said here, the qualifying circumstances are a little bit different, but those people are to be killed. That's why you'll hear these stories and you're just like, what? You know, someone in Iraq or Iran or something like that, you'll, you'll hear a story about these individuals, like where, uh, you know, the daughter becomes a Christian and the father says, if I ever see my daughter again, I will be the one to kill her. You know, you hear these stories and you're like, that just, what? It's 2019. That doesn't even make sense. But that is something that these people believe. Again, not a peaceful religion. Let's go to the next section here. Quote, 
Through selective quotation, Muhammad becomes the picture-perfect prophet. The vast body of Hadith and Sira literature particularly enables this phenomenon. If a Western Muslim wants to paint a peaceful portrait of Muhammad, all they have to do is quote peaceful Hadith and verses of the Quran, to the exclusion of the violent ones. If an Islamic extremist wants to mobilize his followers to acts of terrorism, he will quote the violent references to the exclusion of the peaceful ones. This method of selective quotation is pervasive, often egregious. For example, the Quranic verse that I have seen quoted more often than any other to defend a peaceful view of Islam is 532. I have seen it cited on CNN, MSNBC, ABC, and innumerable Dabwa materials to show that the Quran discourages murder. What each of these references omitted was the first line of the verse, which makes it explicit that the prohibition of murder was directed specifically to the Jews. It was not a teaching sent to Muslims. It is the next verse that directly relates to Islam and Muslims. Quote, the penalty for those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and strive upon earth, unquote, to cause corruption is none but that they be killed or crucified or that their hands and feet be cut off from the opposite sides or that they will be exiled from the land, unquote. Unfortunately, that verse is also ignored in the process of selective quotation, unquote. So I think I got the quotes a little jacked up in there, but I think you guys completely understand there. That is a a quote, and that is something that I highlighted years ago when I read this book, and I come back to it often. Because the thing about it is, is we always talk about, you know, text is just text without context, right? You know, you have to have context for things to be that important. But again, to see something, uh, you know, I, I would normally say something along the lines is if you can attribute something to stupidity, you shouldn't attribute it to malice. Or if you can tr- attribute it to ignorance, you shouldn't attribute it to malice. But I think some of the people that are quoting verses like that, they're certainly doing it on purpose. So they're trying to make Muhammad look like this peaceful guy that only fought defensive wars. And again, I'm not doing a deep dive into Islam today, but that's just not the reality. And we got one last quote here from the same book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So here we go. The quote, as I continued reading from volume one, Hadith three, I found many Hadith with teachings I had heard often, including that Muslims should avoid harming others, as we see in 110, feed the poor and greet strangers kindly, as we see in 111, and even follow the golden rule, as we see in 112. No doubt this was the loving, peaceful Islam I had always known. But when I arrived at Hadith 124, my jaw dropped. In it, Muhammad says, quote, I have been ordered by Allah to fight against people until they testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah and that Muhammad is Allah's apostle, and offer the prayers perfectly and give the obligatory charity. Then they will save their lives and property from me, unquote. Were my eyes playing tricks on me? Muhammad was saying that he would fight people until they became Muslim or until he killed them and took their property. That was impossible. It ran counter to everything I knew about Muhammad, and it was contradict- and it contradicted the Quran's clear statement that, quote, there is no compulsion in religion, unquote. I simply could not believe it, and so I hurriedly moved on to the next hadith. But 125 said that the greatest thing a Muslim can do after having faith is to engage in jihad. As if to clarify what kind of jihad, Sahih Bukhari clarifies, quote, religious fighting, unquote, unquote. So, again, this is somebody, and you might say, oh, well, this guy's a Christian whenever he's writing this. Obviously, he has a dog in the fight. What exactly was his dog in the fight here? He lost his entire life. He literally gave up his entire life and his t- entire family to follow Jesus. Something that most of us don't have to say. 
right? You know, some of us have, you know, maybe it's our dad or our, you know, our aunt or somebody. Things get awkward when you try to pray at Christmas dinner or whatever the thing might be. Or you might have, you know, a couple of family members that like to poke at you because they're atheists and, you know, they just want to say, oh, you're so illogical and all those different things. But the thing that's important to remember is most of us give up nothing to worship Jesus. Nothing. In a year, we might not get invited to one party or it might be excluded from one, you know, group text or something like that if we're a Christian. But for the most of us, we don't suffer anything for Jesus. So a guy like Nabil Qureshi, he put his, literally his entire life on the line in order to do this. Like the level of security, as far as I can understand, the level of security that he had to have from RZIM events and things like that that he was going to just because he used to be a Muslim. I mean, think about that. If you're a Muslim and you take seriously the the ramifications of apostasy, that's a guy that you need to kill. And again, this isn't about, you know, is extremism. This isn't about being radicalized. You hear about these guys getting radicalized. You know, when, when a Navy SEAL goes over there and, and kills, you know, a bunch of terrorists, it's like, oh, well, that's just going to radicalize that those terrorist cousins and brothers and all those different things. No, 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 no. This, this is the reality of that religion in its most basic form. And this is the scary part. And Nabil Qureshi was the first person to point this out to me. And then I've certainly seen others say that is the scary part is, is those people in those terrorist organizations, those are the ones that are following the text of the Quran most closely. I I mean, just think about that. That's, that should scare all of us. That that's something that almost 2 billion people on the planet believe, Right. And within the next, I don't know, I've heard, I've heard different people say this, but within the next 20 to 30 years, the dominant world religion will be Islam. Unless something else happens if we just look at current statistical trends. So the overwhelming majority of people on the planet will believe things like this. And I'm not trying to say these things just to be an alarmist. I'm just like, it's almost like I'm just reporting the news. Like, did y'all know it said that in the Quran? Did y'all even know what the Hadith was? Do you know how seriously a lot of Muslims around the world take the Hadith? I mean, because I know a lot of this, and I would certainly put myself in this category. All the Muslims you know are just nice people, right? You know, you know a lot of Muslims that are better than your Christian friends and that kind of a thing, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about anecdotal evidence about people that we know from, you know, back home or people that are, you know, living down the street. And I'm not saying you need to, like, turn in your neighbors to the police here, but it is something to, to be concerned about that this is what their book says. Because here's the thing about most Christians that I want to kind of bring this back to us. Most Christians don't do what the Bible says, y'all. I mean, you know this. And that's all of us. That's me included. We know stuff is written in the Bible and we know what it says, but we do something else anyway. Right. I mean, just think about the number of divorced people that go to your church. I mean, that's kind of an example of people like, oh my gosh, that's so unfair. It's like, is it? I mean, Jesus talked about a lot of issues publicly, but he also talked about divorce. He's pretty clear on that issue. If you're divorced and you get married to somebody else, not only are you living in adultery, so is the other person now just from having married you. Right. Unless you were, you know, divorced or unless you left your previous spouse because they had died or, you know, adultery or something like that happened. But, you know, we, we just kind of look over that one. We just kind of pass through. There's a lot of things in the Bible that we don't know because we don't read our Bibles. Like a Bible is just something that collects dust on the shelf or it's an app on your phone that's never open. Right. That's what the Bible is for most of us, because it's so easy to get to. We don't have that thirst for the Bible. We don't have, you know, oh, gosh, we're going to pass this one or two pieces of parchment around the village and we're just going to let everybody read it all at once just so we can all worship at these words. Right. It's just so easy for us. Like we haven't had to really think through anything like that. But again, let's take this to the Quran. 
There's certainly Muslims that are just like that as well. They don't know what the Quran says. The overwhelming majority of what Muslims know to be true is given to them orally. It is passed on to them orally. Again, most Muslims believe, most serious Muslims believe that unless you're reading the Quran in Arabic, you're not reading the Quran. So if you're reading an English translation or a Spanish translation or a German translation or whatever thing might be, you're not reading the Quran. So the majority of the Muslims that you know, do they speak and read Arabic? At least read Arabic? I mean, again, these are things that are concerning because what you have to think about is what about the people that do know what's in there? And what if they start doing those things that they see in there? What if they understand that the ninth surah is the least abrogated text that they have in the entirety of the Quran? What if these are the individuals that read the Hadith and read about all the bloodshed and all the offensive battles that Muhammad and his people went on? I mean, gosh, like that's the thing that's, that's, that's tough for me as when we go over things like this, right? Is at the end of the day, you can't avoid this. I mean, you just can't cut off the head of this snake. It's a worldview, and it's deeper than any of us Western Americans can imagine. Again, it's like whenever you turn from being a Muslim, again, when you leave being a Christian or you leave being a Jew or something like that, no one's coming for your head. No one's trying to blow up your house. It's a different deal entirely. And so we shouldn't be surprised when things like this happen. They're horrific when they do. I mean, the images are absolutely heartbreaking. They're just absolutely terrible, right? But... The reason why I wanted to release this today is because for a lot of you guys, by Thursday, when we normally release our podcast, you're probably not even going to be thinking about this anymore. And the other part of it is, is most of the persecution and genocide that is happening around the world every single day to Christians, we don't hear about. Because this is what Trump tweeted today, and this is what my favorite player, he just signed this contract, and oh, did you see that fight fell through because someone got hurt, or, you know, it's just one of those things, it's just not at the top of our brains. And again, if it's not someone that you knew, like, it just doesn't feel the same. Oh, you know, 300 Sri Lankans dead. Man, that's terrible. No, it's more than that. 300 image bearers of God are no longer alive because Muslim fundamentalist terrorists decided they wanted to kill them because that's what their book says. Man, it's just, it's so disheartening and it's so hard to have that discussion with people because it's, we just, we just don't know what we don't know over here in the West. And that's not me advocating like, oh, we really need to know what this is about. But for most people in the United States, they have not thought about this since 9-11. Like if if you haven't followed what's happening in Iraq and in Afghanistan and Syria, and if you haven't been following that closely, uh, and if you don't have any friends of yours that have lost soldiers overseas, and if you don't have, it just doesn't hit home for, for very many of us, right? But again, go back to episode 47 of this podcast, Persecution and Genocide. It's terrifying what is happening to our brothers and sisters. And we should have lament with them. So guys, I know this is a little bit of a a somber podcast, but it wasn't meant to be an upbeat one. It's just, it's a tough subject, but you know, we're just going to constantly keep going into that. So before we let you guys go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically we do things like this podcast to provide you guys with content that will help you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today we're going to give you guys some mental resilience and spiritual resilience. We're going to kind of give you a few resources. So uh, the article that I read off the top, Sri Lankan death toll rises to nearly 300 as authorities admit they receive threats. 
I uh, put that there for you guys because again, it had a lot of different resources inside of that. Um, I don't have the links here because I don't know where most of y'all are listening to this, but obviously just flip back into your old episodes and listen to episode 47, Persecution and Genocide, and episode 67, Kiakaha. That'll kind of give you the undergirding of what we were talking about today. But then also I left you with Nabil Qureshi's website. So obviously I made mention of him. We read a lot of his quotes from two of his books, but if you go to his website, you can find a lot of his uh, speaking engagements that he get. If you type his name into YouTube, you can find a lot of his stuff there, but also you can just go to links for his books, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, No God But One, Allah, or Jesus, and then also a book he wrote called Answering Jihad. And so those are three really, really fantastic books. Those are the books that kind of spawned a lot of my interest in studying Islam and kind of figuring out things that are going on there. So I think those will be good resources for all of you. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. As always, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If we deserve a five-star review, guys, please leave us one of those. That's how this podcast will continue to grow and make sure you leave us a few sentences letting us know why you like the material. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of the year. If you want me to come speak on your podcast, come speak to your men's group, to your team, to your events, whatever you want me to do, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, info at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life and also, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life and Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.